You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, folks, to this episode of the Bible for Normal People. Before we begin, just a reminder that my latest book, Curveball, When Your Faith Takes Turns You Never Saw Coming, is out there in the world waiting patiently for you to read. My soul really went into this book. It's about my reflections on my own personal experiences that over the years have changed how I think about God, Jesus, the Bible, and faith. So if that interests you, and why wouldn't it, please check it out. Now, today, I'm going to ruin for you the book of Judges, by which I mean talk about it, with one eye open to the literature itself and the other two scholarly conversations about the book. Let's get right into this, shall we? Judges is not written as a book that just chronicles historical events. Judges paints a picture of how disloyalty to Yahweh leads to conflict, either from within the tribes themselves or from outside forces. It is shaped as a recounting of past stories, but arranged in such a way as to build up to the grand conclusion, we need a king. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Now, this book, Judges, follows right after the book of Joshua, and it takes us from Joshua's death, which we saw at the end of Joshua, to the story of the monarchy, which begins in 1 Samuel, the next book. This is the period of time in between the death of Joshua and the beginning of the monarchy, when Israel existed as a loose confederation of tribes that were marked by things like kinship loyalties and geography. They're not a nation yet. It's that in-between period. Now, the book of Judges is so-called because it tells a story of, well, a number of individuals collectively referred to as judges, but what is a judge? Well, the one notion we should strike from our minds right away is that these judges oversaw legal disputes or some such thing. The only judge who acts this way is Deborah. So, it seems that the term judges is more a general term used to describe people who perform different functions such as a oh, military commander or warrior, even priests and prophets. And not to complicate things unnecessarily, but these people are only called judges collectively in chapter 2, verses 16 to 19. Elsewhere, they are described more by their role. And these judges arose to deal with some conflict, either among the tribes of Israel or with outsiders like the Moabites, for example. So, bottom line, a judge is basically a tribal leader who arose to deal with some threat or conflict. Now, 
if you do the math. According to the book of Judges, this period lasted about 400 years, which is comparable to the 480 years between the Exodus and the building of the temple that's mentioned in 1 Kings 6 verse 1. The extra 80 years, the 80-year difference in 1 Kings is needed to account for the reigns of Saul and David, so 40 years each. But both numbers, 400 and 480, seem to be idealized numbers. They're, they're nice round numbers that are meant to convey God's divine oversight, and, and biblical numbers do function that way. So that's the story there, but from an archaeological point of view, the period between the Exodus and the time of Saul's reign, it's Israel's first king, is probably closer to 200 years. Why? Well, because there is clear evidence of a dramatic increase. Now, hang with me here, folks. This is a bit of archaeology, but it's super interesting. There's evidence of a dramatic increase in Canaanite hill country settlements around 1200 BCE, which we already looked at in our Joshua episode, which was episode 224. Now, this increase of population is consistent with a new population entering Canaan, which in this case would be basically the Israelites. Now, it's in truth way more complicated than I just laid out, but this will do for our purposes. The point is simply this, that any Israelite presence in Canaan allows really only for about a 200-year span, not a 400-year span. Okay, so what? Well, one legitimate way of solving this little problem is to suggest that the periods of the individual judges, as we read them, you know, one after another in the book of Judges, that these reigns of these judges overlap rather than follow a strict chronology of one after the other. And I think this is very plausible, especially since we are dealing with tribal authorities rather than a true national entity, right? So we can imagine the various tribes dealing with some issues simultaneously, not chronologically. Also, and we'll get to this more in a minute, at the end of the book, namely chapters 17 through 21, they seem to deal with matters that happen toward the beginning of the story of Judges, not the end. In other words, adhering to a strict chronology in Judges doesn't seem to be the writer's intention. And this brings us to the main point of the book. Okay, so here it is. Judges paints a picture of how disloyalty to Yahweh leads to conflict, either from within the tribes themselves or from outside forces. These various judges, for the most part, they deliver the Israelites from harm. And this cycle of disobedience followed by conflict, followed by deliverance at the hands of a judge, and then back to disobedience. This is seen in almost all of these stories. And the episodes themselves generally paint a bleaker and bleaker picture as we keep reading, resulting in the horrible events of the closing chapters, which we'll get to, believe me, we're not going to leave that untalked about, okay? So, the overall point of the book is to paint a not terribly flattering picture of this period of the tribal confederation. Well, why? Well, in order to prop up the need for a monarchy. In fact, the very last verse of Judges drives the point home. Here it is. In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. That's chapter 21, verse 25. See, there's utter chaos. We need a king Specifically, we need a king from the line of David. And back to that in a few minutes. There's a lot happening here in the book of Judges. Okay, so let's get into it a bit more by looking at an outline of the book. And as many of you well know, I love outlines. And the simpler, the better for gaining a big picture, sort of a working knowledge of a biblical book, especially a long one. So basically, the book of Judges has a three-part structure. The introduction, which begins at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, and it goes to chapter 3, verse 6. The second part is the stories of the 12 judges themselves, and that runs from 3-7 through the end of chapter 16. And then some really bad stuff at the end that makes you want to puke. That's chapter 17 to 21. So let's take each of these three parts and blow them up a bit. Okay, so first, the introduction. 
scholars generally agree that there are actually two introductions to the book of Judges. The first runs from 1-1 to 2-5. And what does it do? Well, it recounts Israel's failures in getting rid of the Canaanites completely. As we saw in the Joshua episode, already there we see a tension between the idealized portrayal of the conquest in the first half of Joshua, where the Canaanites are just exterminated, and the more sober account beginning in chapter 13, where we read that much of the land still remains unconquered. There are Canaanites still there. Well, this first introduction recounts the successes and failures of the individual tribes to subjugate, and not for the most part annihilate, but to subjugate Canaanites living in the hill country. The failure of complete success over the Canaanites is chalked up to disobedience to God. So as punishment, Canaanites will be a constant source of trouble for the Israelites. Okay, that's the first introduction. The second introduction begins at 2.6, and it runs through 3.6. It begins with recounting the death of Joshua and the aftermath of disobedience on the part of the next generation. Now, you may remember that Joshua's death was already recounted in the book of Joshua, and the opening words of Judges assumes that he's dead. The book begins after the death of Joshua, right? He's dead. He died already. He's still dead. But here, in the second introduction, hmm, his death is recounted again, as if for the first time. Sometimes in the Hebrew Bible, repetitions like this suggest the editorial merging of two traditions, which is something we have seen throughout the Hebrew Bible, beginning already with Genesis. So, this is not a big deal. Now, the second introduction is typically labeled Deuteronomistic. Now, we ran across this idea in the Joshua episode, but let me lay it out very quickly here. Joshua through 2 Kings, not the book of Ruth, that's not included, but Joshua through 2 Kings are called the Deuteronomistic history because some of the main themes of the book of Deuteronomy are found fleshed out here in these stories. In fact, it seems like the book of Deuteronomy is really the theological basis for these books, Joshua through 2 Kings. So the main theme that we see here in Judges is that obedience results in blessing and disobedience results in punishment. And the main way that Israel disobeys God is by worshiping foreign gods and or by adopting elements of foreign worship for the worship of Yahweh. And both are major no-nos in the book of Deuteronomy. So the point here is that this second Deuteronomic introduction, as it's called, it lays out the pattern that we are going to see throughout much of the book of Judges. Obedient people prosper, then they're punished after falling into some sort of apostasy, which is followed by God's using Israel's enemies to oppress them as punishment, which leads to repentance on the part of the people and then deliverance at the hands of one of the judges. Now, this reward and punishment dualistic thing is typical of the Deuteronomistic history. Although, you know, not to get into this whole thing, but it is questioned in parts of the Hebrew Bible as well, namely Job, Ecclesiastes, and some of the Psalms, like the Lament Psalms. Anyway, that's not the topic we're going to discuss here. Here, I just want to say this, that this Deuteronomic element in Judges is understood by scholars to reflect the exilic or post-exilic reworking of Israel's story. It's an indication that this book is not written at a time when things were happening, but much later with some serious reflection, and I hope that part will become clear as we move on, okay? Now, another thing about this second introduction is how it explains the continued presence of the Canaanites. Now, in chapter 2, verses 20 to 21, it's the result of Israel's disobedience by worshiping foreign gods, which matches well what the first introduction says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. But the second introduction adds two more elements to this, two more reasons. The first is that the Canaanites are there to be a constant test for the Israelites so God can see whether they actually mean it. 
sort of, you know, keeping the temptation in front of them to see how serious they are. And secondly, the reason that the Canaanites are there is so that those who have had no experience of battle can get in some practice reps. They're sort of like, you know, tackling dummies or something on a football team. Anyway, this second intro ends with the Israelites intermarrying with the indigenous peoples of Canaan, which is another major no-no. You just don't do that. And this rebellion against God is what launches the stories of the judges themselves, which begins the second part of the outline, starting at 3-7 and running through chapter 16. That's the bulk of the book of Judges. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week, and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital, and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways, and that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose and it's just my throat hurts and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. So, here are the judges we meet in part two. Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar great names, and then Deborah, who gets two chapters, and she's followed by Gideon and his rout of the Midianites, and that's in chapters six through eight. And next is an interruption in the story. Gideon's horrid son, Abimelech, this is chapter nine, tries to establish a monarchy with him at the helm. Isn't it always that way? So he dies when a woman dropped a millstone on his head and crushed his skull. That sad story is followed by tales of the remaining judges, Tola and Jair, who get five verses total, then Jephthah, who gets quite a bit, then Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon, which all of them get four, eight verses rather, total, and then finally Samson, who gets four chapters, So that, which is the longest in the book. So with Gideon, Jephthah, and Deborah, we have Samson, and they get a good chunk of airtime in this portrayal of these judges. Now, let me say a few words about these judges one at a time. And some we can say a lot about, some we can't say very much about at all. So, the first, Othniel, he delivers the idolatrous Israelites from the hands of King Kushan Rishatayim of Aram. And that second word, Rishatayim, means doubly wicked, which likely means that's not his real name, right? He's not going to be named that. That's the name given to him by the Israelites because, you know, they're telling the story. Anyway, that's a short little story. Uh, the next is Ehud, 
which is one of my favorite short stories in the whole Bible. Ehud, uh, who, what does he do? He delivers the Israelites from the hands of King Eglon of Moab. Now, Moab is next door to Israel on the other side of the Jordan River. And just like with Kushan Rishatayim of Aram, Eglon was being used by God to punish Israel for disobedience. So anyway, we're told that Eglon is fat, and Ehud, we are told, is left-handed, and he strapped a sword onto his right leg. Now, who cares? Well, most warriors are right-handed, which would mean strapping the sword onto the left leg, you sort of reach over and grab it. So this gives Ehud an element of surprise, which he's going to act upon very shortly. So while Eglon was sitting in his cool roof chamber, Ehud thrust the sword into Eglon's body so deep that the hilt of the sword also got buried in Eglon's very fat body, and we are further told that, quote, the dirt came out. At least that's according to the New Revised Standard Version. The Hebrew isn't completely certain. But a plausible interpretation is that Ehud killed Eglon while he was sitting on the john, the cool roof chamber, and then he pooped himself. Okay, so I think this is supposed to be funny. Anyhow, the Moabites were defeated, and Israel had rest for 80 years. Next is this guy Shamgar, who gets one verse at the end of chapter 3. What did he do? Well, he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad, which is a cattle prod. It's a, you know, it's a long stick with a poker at the end to just prod the cattle to keep moving, right? Now, it's hard to know what to do with this guy, Shamgar. Shamgar is not a Semitic name, and the next verse... 4-1 picks up with what happens after Ehud's death. So Shamgar seems to be stuck here for some reason, and it interrupts the flow of the story. Some scholars think that this guy was added to round out the number of judges to 12, an important Hebrew number, but you know, frankly, who knows? I will say, though, that Shamgar is mentioned in the very ancient poem in chapter 5, more in a second. So this might be some way of getting him some airtime too. Now, chapters 4 and 5 are about Deborah. And this time the Lord hands the rebellious Israelites over to King Jabin of Canaan, whose military commander was Sisera. Remember that name. Anyway, Deborah is referred to here as a prophetess who also settles disputes among the people. So she commands Barak, this guy Barak, to lead an offensive to draw Sisera out and adds that, quote, the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Well, who is this woman? Well, it's not Deborah. No, no, no. You see, Sisera's army is routed and he flees into the tent of Jael and she is a woman. She's the wife of Heber, the Kenite, and the Kenites were allies of Jabin. So, safe place to go, right? So, Jael went out to meet him, invited him into her tent, and made him nice and cozy with a blanket and some milk. And as soon as Sisera fell asleep, what happened? Ladies, you know this story. I hope you do. Jael drove with a mallet, a tent peg, into Sisera's temple, clear through his head and into the ground. See, the enemy whom God summoned, by the way, to punish Israel, this enemy gets clobbered for doing just that. And a good time was had by all. Now, the dominant role played by two women here is definitely worth mentioning. The killing of Commander Sisera by a woman is meant to both mock the Canaanites, I think, and also to speak to how the Lord is orchestrating this whole thing. And as for Deborah, her role as a prophet and leader, who apparently can command Barak to go to war is one of only four women in the Hebrew Bible identified as a prophetess, Miriam, Moses' sister, being perhaps the best known. And this whole story has Exodus overtones. For example, the panic the Lord throws Sisera's army into, this is in chapter 4, verse 15, it reminds us of the Lord doing the very same thing to the Egyptians in Exodus 14 at the Red Sea. They are struck with panic. Women also play a prominent role in Exodus, the Israelite midwives, Moses' sister, Moses' mother, and Pharaoh's daughter, all in Exodus too. They thwart Pharaoh's intention of killing the children, the male children, which would include Moses. So Deborah's role here continues that theme 
of women playing major roles in Israel's development and Israel's move into the promised land. And if anything, just knowing that should temper our assumptions about, you know, the patriarchal mindset of the Bible. Now, it's there. It's definitely there. But not all the women were barefoot and pregnant homemakers, as some like to picture them. Something else we have to mention here is that this is a twice-told story, chapter 4 being the narrative version and chapter 5 being the older poetic version. We see the same sort of thing in the Exodus story. In chapters 14 and 15, you have a narrative depiction of the event followed by the poetic version of the Red Sea Crossing. Scholars consider the poem here in chapter 5 to be one of the oldest pieces of Israelite literature, dating perhaps to about 1200 BCE. That's 200 years before the monarchy and roughly near the time period when these stories are placed historically. Now, this poem is, I think, super interesting for a number of reasons, most of which we can't get into or this would become a podcast on Judges 5. It basically recounts Deborah mustering the tribes, calling the tribes together to help them in their battle. But only six respond. One of those tribes is referred to as Mahir, which is the only reference to Mahir and any tribal list in the Hebrew Bible. It is, however, a part of Manasseh, which is a huge northern tribe. But referring to it as Mahir is interesting and might suggest an older name for the tribe. Now, four, or it might be five tribes, don't respond. I say four or five because one tribe there mentioned is Meroz, which is not a known tribe, so we're not really sure what's going on there. But anyway, some respond, some don't. But here's the really interesting part. Judah, Simeon, and Levi are not mentioned at all. Now, Levi is understandable because he has no actual territory. He wouldn't be called on to fight. But Judah and Simeon do. Their territory is in the south. So, The tribes in this poem are all northern, but why leave off the southern tribes? Why not call them? Good question, folks. Very good question. Now, let's just say that scholars here see a window onto an early stage of Israel's tribal confederacy, because this is such an old poem, right? One conclusion is that the north seems to have had a long-held identity as its own thing, which may help explain how the division of the monarchy into north and south after the death of Solomon, this is around 930 BCE, a good bit after uh, this period we're talking about, but it explains how that north-south division could have happened so neatly. See, not unlike the American Civil War, the north-south division didn't just happen haphazardly, right? There was a history of distinction in America between North and South that predated the later conflict of the Civil War. So when America did go to war, it did so with pre-existing Northern-Southern identities. Now, another possible interpretation, going a little further than the one I just gave, is that early on in Israel's history, there actually were no Southern tribes, at least not before the monarchy. The whole history of the North and South that we read about in later books of the Hebrew Bible would therefore be a creation of the southern tribe of Judah, which alone survived exile and then alone returned to the land to write their story. See, it's well known, and we've covered this in other episodes, that Judah, the lone surviving tribe of the Twelve, got to leave its imprint on the ancient story of their people. Judah's prominence in the Hebrew Bible, especially in Genesis, is a product of how the winners told the story. But we don't see that here. We don't see that in Judges chapter 5. Judah is not even in the picture. It seems to be an older reflection. See, just a quick side note here. Um, I'm forever telling my students that when it comes to studying the Bible, you can't talk about anything without talking about everything. There are so many interconnected parts to this complex, heavily edited collection of writings that we call the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. It just keeps you busy. And it's hard to talk about anything without bringing all these other layers into it. Okay. 
Two more quick things about this poem. I'm really spending time here because it's it's the topic of a lot of scholarly uh, conversations. First, Yahweh here is depicted as a warrior, as he is in Exodus 15, that poetic version of the Exodus story. Like the nations around them, the earliest picture of Yahweh we get from these ancient poems is of a warring deity. And this deity's home, Sinai, is said to be in the south, in Seir. That's the second point I want to make. So Seir is in the south, it's in the region of Edom. And this early memory is very close to the tradition that we saw already elsewhere, namely in the book of Exodus, that places Sinai in Midian, which is just a little bit further south of Edom. So I think that's really interesting. We have you know, a, a location of Yahweh's mountain to the south, around Edom, south of Edom, maybe implying Midian. And that's just an interesting piece of early reflection on the part of these Israelites, where Yahweh's home was sort of always known to be way down there. And then finally, if you're up for it, if you're up for some pathos, actually, read verses 24 to 31. This is the end of chapter 5 and how Jael's act is described, but also how Sisera's mother is back home, looking out the window, pining for her boy to come home, and he never does. It's actually quite evocative. All right, the next story is a long one with a few moving parts, and this is the story of Gideon, chapter 6 through 8, and Gideon's deliverance of the Israelites from the Midianites, into whose hands the Lord had delivered the Israelites for doing, quote, evil in the sight of the Lord. That's 6-1. Namely, for worshiping the gods of the Amorites, and the Amorites are a subgroup of people living in Canaan. We have to worry about that. So, to deliver them from the Midianites, God calls Gideon, who is soon renamed Jerubbaal. Why? Because he tore down the altar of Baal, Baal, as is sometimes pronounced, uh, this altar that his father had erected. Now, he proves to be quite the resourceful commander. They are outnumbered by the Midianites, but Gideon routed them by playing a little trick on them. He divided his 300 men into three groups, each holding a trumpet in one hand and an empty jar with a torch inside in the other. They all blew the trumpets and, and smashed the jars at once to reveal the torches. And this surprise sent the Midianites into confusion and, with the help of the tribe of Ephraim, four Midianite kings wound up meeting a violent end. Now, for his efforts, the Israelites asked Gideon to rule over them, to be their king, but he refused, citing that neither he nor his son will rule over them. Remember that, neither he nor his son will rule over them, but only the Lord will. By the way, folks, you can't talk about anything without talking about everything. In 1 Samuel 8, we see the same sentiment, that kingship is of questionable value when Yahweh is already your king. So, good for Gideon. But he does slip up here anyway. He asks each of the Israelites to give him one gold earring that were taken from the booty from the battle earlier on. And Gideon, he made an ephod from it, which is a breast piece that the high priest is supposed to wear. And You know, Gideon's not a high priest, so what's going on here? Well, the people got caught up in this breastpiece, and it became like an idol that ensnared the Israelites. So the story doesn't end well, but nevertheless, they did have peace under Gideon for 40 years. But we're already seeing signs of trouble in how this episode ends. And speaking of trouble, let's keep going. This story of Gideon is followed up with the story of Abimelech, Gideon's son, who figured directly contrary to what his dad just said. He said, hey, you know, I'll be king. Can't pass this up. Now, apparently Gideon had 70 sons. A lot of sons, by the way. And Abimelech used that fact to manipulate support. You know, hey, do you want 70 rulers or just one? Well, the clan bought it, but Abimelech had other plans. He hired, quote, worthless and reckless fellows, that's in chapter 9, verse 4, to kill his 70 brothers. Well, 69. Jotham, the youngest, escaped, and he took it upon himself to denounce Abimelech and curse him by telling a parable involving trees, the point of which is that this parable is 
an anti-monarchic allegory. Well, Abimelech ruled anyway for three years until the Lord brought an evil spirit, as it says, between Abimelech and the lords of Shechem. And that's important because that's Abimelech's support base. Now, the anti-monarchic vibe of these stories, which includes the sending of an evil spirit on Abimelech, which, by the way, the evil spirit's not a demon or something. It's it's like negative divine influence. It's something that God generates. But these, these factors, they anticipate the anti-monarchic vibe and the sending of the evil spirit. They anticipate the reign of Saul in verse 7. The people insist on a king, and Saul seems to be the right man for the job, even though the whole idea of kingship is condemned by Samuel and the Lord in 1 Samuel 8. And then in 1 Samuel 16, God sends an evil spirit on Saul, which is the sign that Saul has been rejected by God as king. So Abimelech here is, I think without question, a Saul figure, a king who doesn't have the right stuff and is rejected. He rules for a bit, but not for long. And this reminds us of a main point of this book. Kingship may not be the ideal, but it is necessary to check the chaos of this tribal confederacy. But the king, well, the king has to be the right type. Put this another way, judges is ultimately pro-kingship, but like a necessary evil, but the kingship is definitely anti-Saul, which we'll come back to in a minute. Anyway, long story short, Abimelech dies by crushed skull syndrome when, who, an anonymous woman, throws an upper millstone from the top of a tower onto Abimelech's head. Now, an upper millstone is the heavier of the two stones used to grind wheat. By the way, in case you missed it, this is the second time in Judges that a bad guy is thwarted by a woman inflicting a head injury, right? Remember Jael driving a tent peg through Sisera's skull? So here we have it again. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Okay, next, we're in Chapter 10 now. We read of two minor judges, Tola and Jair, 
who judged Israel 23 and 22 years respectively. But for some reason, these two only get six verses total, you know, hence minor judges. And we move on quickly from there to another oppression, this by the Ammonites. And they were the latest enemy that the Lord used to punish his people for idolatry. So they cried out to God, but he basically told them, hey, you know, pray to the gods that you're worshiping and let them deliver you, right? But they begged the Lord more and more, and he gave in, this time delivering them through the judge, Jephthah, whom we are told was a mighty warrior and the son of a prostitute. Now, apparently the issue here is that the Ammonites, they want back the land that the Israelites took from them as they made their way to capture the land of Canaan way back under Joshua. And Ammon is situated right across from the Jordan River, right above Moab. Jephthah says, uh, no thanks, we're not going to do that. We've had this land for 300 years and now you're waging war to get it back? Huh. So, Faced with this threat, Jephthah does one of the dumbest things you can imagine. He makes a vow to the Lord, and vows are serious things. And here's the vow. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whoever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return victorious from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's to be offered up by me as a burnt offering. Okay, Jephthah, um... Just asking here, did you think this one through? What did you think was going to come out of your house? A cow? No, it's your daughter, you moron, your only child. So now he is bound to go through with the oath. You can't get out of the vow to the Lord. That's how it works. So his daughter, unnamed, well, she basically takes one for the team. She complies willingly, but asks for two months for her and her friends to go into the mountains and quote, bewail my virginity. And two months later, she sacrificed. Now, this is a horrible story, but it gets worse at the end of the book. My point, however, and I'm convinced of this, is that readers are supposed to be horrified by this rash oath during a chaotic period of leaderless Israel. We're not supposed to just take this story in stride, oh, that's okay, this is the biblical period, weird things happen, it's all fine. The writer of Judges, I think, is leading us along a path where things are getting worse and worse, and the only solution is a king, the right kind of king, who will be David and his descendants. That's what this guy's after. So, in other words, you know, the Bible contains a horrific story like this, but it doesn't condone it as if it's okay for a father to make a rash vow, slit a virgin daughter's throat, and burn her up. In no biblical universe is this sort of thing okay. The point is that things have escalated to this point, and, you know, we're only halfway through the book. Where is this chaos headed? Well, stay tuned. The next story, which is 12, 1 to 7, is a little side comment on intertribal conflicts involving Jephthah and the tribe of Ephraim, which is, you know, that's the main northern tribe. It's such a main northern tribe. Sometimes the whole land of Israel is simply referred to as Ephraim. But anyway, one point of interest in this story, this little brief story here, is a linguistic one. And just listen up. This is going to change your life. Two of the letters of the Hebrew language are sin and shin. The thing is that those letters are written basically the same way, but they're pronounced differently. Now, to test whether someone was an Ephraimite or one of Jephthah's men, he would have to pass a test. Just say shibboleth. Well, it turns out, for whatever reason, that the Ephraimites have a dialectical quirk where they cannot say shibboleth, but instead pronounce it sibboleth. And we're told 42,000 met their fate this way by not being able to pronounce it. you think they would have caught on at some point. But anyway, um, first of all, it says 42,000. It might not be 42,000. It might mean the, the word for thousand could mean military units. So it might be 42 military units of however many people, a lot fewer than 42,000. But the, the point of my little sidestepping here is that for, for students of ancient Hebrew, this story provides a window onto Hebrew, the language of Hebrew, as a living, breathing language way back in the day. Anyway, Jephthah. He judged for six years, and his reign was followed by three more minor judges. Ibzan, seven years, Elon, ten years, and Abdon, eight years. And all we know is where they are buried, not what they did. 
as if the editor is eager to get to the main attraction, which is the next judge, the one everybody knows, Samson. And he takes up four chapters, 13 through 16, and is another story involving out-of-control heroes featuring vital roles for women. And this story opens up with the account of Samson's birth to Manoah from the tribe of Dan, remember that tribal name, Dan, and his barren wife who is not named. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and told her that she will bear a son, only she should be careful not to drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean, and when this child is born, he will never get his hair cut. And all of this establishes that Samson will be a Nazarite, which is a thing the ceremony is laid out in Numbers chapter 6, and it has to do with separating out someone for special service, which is what Nazarite means, like separate or consecrated. And we'll see this again, folks, uh, in 1 Samuel 8. I keep talking about 1 Samuel 8. It's an important chapter. Uh, with the last judge, Samuel, and he has a miraculous birth where he is likewise raised as a Nazarite. So there's a thing happening here. Well, Samson is born, and he is set apart for God, and things are looking pretty promising because the Philistines are a pain. They've been oppressing the Israelites for 40 years, so perhaps now is deliverance time. But the thing is, this story doesn't read like the other stories of the judges where the people are actually delivered from something. Rather, this story is about a deeply flawed character, Samson, who sidles up to Philistines, their oppressors, remember, and seems to really like Philistine women. Now, marrying outside of your people group is a big problem in much of the Hebrew Bible. Not all of it, but in much of it. And you may remember the story of Jacob and Esau, right? One reason why Esau fell out of favor with his mother and father, Rebecca and Isaac, is that he married outside of Israel. So, the first of Samson's acts concerns his marriage to a Philistine woman in the town of Timnah, which is a Philistine town. Now, the thing is, we're told, and this is in chapter 14, verse 4, we're told that Samson's desire for a Philistine wife was actually because he was looking for a pretext to do the Philistines some harm. So, okay, maybe he's got good intentions. So, so it looks like this is a God thing, but Samson gets too enmeshed and things quickly go south. See, on the way to Timnah to arrange the marriage, he's attacked by a lion whom mighty Samson tears apart with his bare hands. On a subsequent trip, he came back and he saw the carcass and lo and behold, there were bees and honey inside it. So naturally, he scooped out some honey and ate it. Okay, whatever. Well, this little incident sparked Samson to, for some unknown reason, to pose a riddle to the 30 men of his wedding party. And if they guess the riddle, they will be rewarded with linen and festal garments for each of them. And the riddle is this, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. Of course, that's a setup. How is anyone supposed to know the answer to that other than Samson? So after four days, they get really frustrated and they get Samson's wife, also unnamed, to use her tears to get him to tell her, which he did, because he's an idiot, right? And so she told the others who then solved the riddle bad move. Samson is now fuming, so he went down to another Philistine town, Ashkelon, and he killed 30 men, took their stuff, and gave it to the 30 men in Timnah. Right? Now, apparently, he never thought he'd lose the bet, so this is how he fulfilled his vow. Anyway, Samson just seems rather, okay, he's a strong guy, you're sort of glad he's on your side, but he seems a bit impulsive and unwise. So, Samson seems really to have, I think, a hair-trigger temper. So it's understandable to ask when this out-of-control Superman guy is going to take things too far, and he soon has his opportunity. His Philistine wife, he did marry her, but she was given to someone else since he had left and been away for such a long time. The father says, listen, I'm sorry, you know, she's married to somebody else, but he offers his younger daughter, but Samson is just pissed. He is just fit to be tied. So what does he do? Well, he ties... 300 foxes together in pairs, tail to tail, and sticks a torch between the tails and lets them loose in the Philistine crops, burning everything. So the Philistines, why we ever tell these stories to kids, I don't know. But anyway, the Philistines, who remember, are in charge. 
they're oppressing the Israelites. They don't take this well. So they march to Judah to bring Samson to justice. So the people of Judah find him, bring him bound to the Philistines. But now, once again, the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he takes the jawbone of a donkey, which just happens to be lying around and kills a thousand men. So yeah, the Philistines, they're suffering at the hands of Samson. So that's good, right? And the logic of the story, the oppressors are getting theirs. But on the other hand, these events are all Samson's doing. They're responses to his impulsive behavior. Now, the next story has Samson back in Philistine country, which I imagine, given his history in in Philistia, probably, I don't know, took some guts to go down there again. But this time he is in the town of Gaza, and this is again along the coast, and you may know the term the Gaza Strip from modern uh, Israeli politics, but he's down in the, in Gaza where what does he do? Of course, he visits a prostitute. Why not? What should raise some questions, I think, about Samson's character. I think that may, might be the point of making this story like this. So the townsmen were waiting on him to come out to be done with his business so they could kill him, but he got out you know, without them being aware of it. And instead what he did, he marched over to the city gate and pulled it up like roots and all, pillars and all, and carried it 40 miles to Hebron. Why exactly he did this is a good question, but it certainly sets up Samson's strength and the famous scene that is just a few short verses away. So Samson's issue with women, they continue when he falls in love with Delilah, who may or may not be a Philistine, but is definitely not Israelite, and he's just infatuated with her. So the Philistine leaders paid her 1,100 pieces of silver to get from Samson the secret of his strength. Which, by the way, side issue here, like, why would you even think there's a secret to his strength? Maybe he's just a big dude, right? But there's an assumption that there's some secret to his strength, because, of course, there is. Now, Samson no fool he, he doesn't fall for this. He lies to Delilah three times until she pesters him to death and he tells her, fine, okay, I'll tell you, I'm a Nazarite and no razor may touch my head. So yeah, maybe he's a fool because Delilah cuts his hair when he's sleeping and then they bind him, they blind him, and they lead him to prison. Just a little bit poetic that love blinded him as did the Philistines, but... Anyway, while in prison, guess what? His hair begins to grow back, but apparently the Philistines didn't figure out that they would need to keep his hair short. I mean, how could they miss that? Anyway, they bring him to their feast to entertain them, and Samson obliges by blind and all by pushing apart the pillars that held up the whole house, and so he, along with the Philistines, died crushed under the weight of the rubble. Now, the story ends with a note about Samson having judged for 20 years, but it's hard to get that from the story itself. This, again, doesn't follow the pattern we've been looking at and reads more like the exploits of a famous troubled hero or something. Scholars are quick to label the Samson story as folklore rather than history. Now, Samson is the last judge mentioned in the book, and it seems to be a fitting ending to what the writer is trying to get across, right? Samson doesn't really deliver anyone other than himself because of messes he created. And at the end, he doesn't even save himself, but dies in captivity. So here's a guy who could have been Israel's primo awesome protector. He's huge. He's strong. He looks the part. As did Saul, by the way. He was tall and good-looking, bigger than everybody else. The people picked him as king in 1 Samuel because he was basically a prototypical warrior type. There's more to it than this, but Samson's failings, again, call to mind Saul's aborted career as a king. Now, the final two stories in Judges deal with tribal conflicts and just generally chaos. And these stories are marked by a four times repeated refrain, In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. And you see that in 17.6, 18.1, 19.1, and then 20.25, which is the last verse of the book. So this refrain is important. Independent tribes aren't working. It's a mess out there. We need a king. Not any old person will do. It's got to be the right king. Not like Abimelech or Samson or Saul. And so these two concluding stories, there are two of them. Uh, The first is 17 and 18, and the second one is 19 through 21. But these two stories in different ways make the final case for why a righteous king is a must for Israel. The first of these stories, 17 to 18, is about the tribe of Dan. Namely, it's 
loosey-goosey approach to the worship of Yahweh, and then their migration to the north, to new territory. See, Dan was originally located next to Judah in the south, but in this story, they wind up migrating way north. This northward migration was likely necessary due to Dan's inability to rid their territory of Canaanites, and we see that way back in chapter 1. Now, just to remind you, you may remember that earlier I said that these end stories really reflect more action that happens toward the beginning of the story, right? So this whole migration of Dan thing and the inability to get rid of the Canaanites, we saw that in chapter one. This story really belongs in chapter one, but it's at the end because it illustrates something important for this writer, okay? So you have the the loosey-goosey worship. That's the tribe of Dan. And our story begins with this guy, Micah who is of the tribe of Benjamin and whose mother had a silversmith make an idol out of 200 pieces of silver. And this was put in Micah's home shrine, which is odd to have a home shrine if you're an Israelite, right? And this shrine was complete with an ephod, which is a priestly breastpiece associated with casting lots, which is for discerning the divine will, and teraphim, which are these small figurines, again, likewise used for divination, for discerning the divine will. The only thing missing, he's got this idol, he's got the ephod, he's got the uh, the teraphim. The only thing missing is a priest to run the show. So enter into our scene a Levite from Bethlehem who Micah hires to be his personal shrine priest. This whole incident is tagged by the writer as being example number one of everyone doing what is right in their own eyes because there is no king. So you're not supposed to have a private shrine with a personal priest. Remember that the Deuteronomistic history holds as non-negotiable and sacred the notion that worship must be centralized in the Jerusalem temple. You can't just do it in your territory, in your house. So in the next scene, chapter 18, this tribe of Dan is migrating north. And they send spies to scout out the land. And while there, they hear a voice they recognize as that of a young Levite. And this Levite assures them of their military victory. So the Danites, they attack Laish, an unsuspecting people living in peace and prosperity. And the spies, then they go back to Micah's house and they they steal the idol, the ephod, and the breast piece. And they say to the priest, hey, you know what? We're taking this stuff. You can't do anything about it. But why be a priest of one house when you can be a priest for a whole tribe? And that sounded good to the priest, so he went along. Micah, however, obviously can't blame him, gave chase and caught up with them, and the Danites threatened his life, so Micah just went back home. So after the capture of Laish, which is now renamed Dan, the priest Jonathan, we learn his name, Jonathan, along with his sons were priests in Dan, quote, until the time the land went into captivity. That's in 1830. And that is a clear reference to the exile of the north at the hands of the Assyrians in 721 BCE, which tells us something about when this was written, right? This is, this is after these events, much longer after the period of the judges. So all in all, this is a very good example of Deuteronomic condemnation of non-centralized worship. That's what's happening here. Okay, don't do that. So, okay, this is a bad story. The idolatry and migration of the tribe of Dan is a violation of God's command of centralized worship, which is a key value in, in the book of Deuteronomy. Look at chapter 12. But it gets worse. Chapters 19 through 21 include one of the more horrific stories of the Hebrew Bible, that of cutting a concubine into 12 pieces and sending her body parts to the 12 tribes. So what's going on here? Let's get into that. This story involves a Levite living in Ephraim who took a concubine for himself, but she fled and went back to her father, which prompted the Levite to go fetch her back. On the way home, rather than spend the night in Jebus, which is what Jerusalem was called before David captured it, but rather than spend the night in Jebus, they went on to Gibeah. Now, Gibeah, it may interest you to know, is in the territory of Benjamin and is the site of Saul's royal residence. Hold that thought, okay? Now, the Levite and his concubine had intended to stay just in the open square, not to bother anybody, but an old man persuaded them to stay with him in his house where it's safe. And if you're thinking, 
Gee, this sounds like the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Well, you're right. The men of Gibeah press against the house, wanting to have sex with the priest, the visitor, right? The old man offers his virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine instead, but the town folk will have none of this. So in desperation and cowardice, I think the Levite, who, by the way, had just gone to all this trouble of retrieving his concubine, what does he do? He throws her out the door to be raped all night. So Gibeah, the home of Saul, is no better than the people of Sodom, who had been punished by God with fire from on high. The next morning, the Levite finds her lying with her hands on the threshold, motionless. Whether dead or unconscious is not clear, by the way. And he straps her to his donkey, heads home, and proceeds to carve her body into 12 pieces to send them out to the 12 tribes as a call to arms. I mean, he could have written a letter, but whatever. So, all Israel we read, rallies around the cause, and they attack Gibeah, all except the tribe of Benjamin. Why? Because Gibeah is in Benjamite territory. So long story short, you can read about this in chapter 12, a battle ensues involving an ambush, and the Benjamites are defeated. This spelled double trouble, for not only are the Benjamites defeated, but the other Israelites swore they would never let their daughters marry Benjamite men, which would mean their eventual extinction. But they had second thoughts. Though they could not break the oath, they had another idea to solve this little problem. They decided to go to the town of Jabesh Gilead and take their virgin women, after killing the men and the non-virgin women, but to take their virgin women and hand them over to the Benjamites so they could have some kids. So why Jabesh Gilead? Well, because this town which is located on the other side of the Jordan, did not answer the original call to arms, and therefore they did not make the same oath. Ha ha. So Benjamin survives, but there's another problem here. There are not enough virgin women in Jabesh Gilead for every Benjamite male. So they went to another town, a very important town, Shiloh, to kidnap the virgins who were hang with me, folks, who were dancing in the vineyards during the annual festival at Shiloh. So they would just nab them as they're dancing, grab them, and, you know, whatever, take off. (laughs) Here, children, endeth today's children's Bible story time. This is just weird stuff. So, see, it's at the end of this episode that the refrain is repeated for the fourth time. That refrain, in those days there was no king in Israel, all the people did what was right in their own eyes. And it's worth pointing out again that Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, had his royal residence in Gibeah, and delivered Jabesh Gilead. See, it's hard to miss how the end of Judges especially has an anti-Northern slant, Dan, and an anti-Saul perspective. The response to cultic and political chaos, I should explain that word cultic. Cultic is a sort of a technical scholarly term that's very handy, and I like using it. Cultic is simply a shorthand way of talking about anything that has to do with worship, pre-sacrifice, any rituals, anything like that. So it doesn't mean like, you know, Guyana and Jim Jones cults or anything like that. It has to do with worship. So so what we have here in these closing chapters is, is cultic and political chaos. And the response to that, the answer to that is to have the right kind of king on the throne who won't let that happen which is in the mind of the Deuteronomistic historian, that's David and his line. Even though there's some ambiguity about kingship in 1 and 2 Samuel, which we'll get to next time, this is the solution. We need a king to rule over us because the judges aren't doing it. So just in conclusion, folks, bottom line, Judges is not written as a book that just chronicles historical events even if there might be historical elements there. It is shaped, rather, as a recounting of past stories, but arranged in such a way as to build up to the grand conclusion, we need a king. And for various reasons, scholars see judges, like most books of the Hebrew Bible, as a product of post-exilic reflection on the part of the Judahites. This wasn't written in real time before the monarchy, but after its demise, at the hands of the Babylonians. And they were answering for themselves that question, yes, we do need a king who will rebuild our nation. All right, folks, I hope this has been helpful, this little jaunt through the book of Judges, and uh, blessings to all of you, and we'll see you next time where we're going to look at 1 Samuel. See ya. 
Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. You've just made it through another episode of The Bible for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch the latest episode of our other show, Faith for Normal People, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by The Bible for Normal People podcast team. Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Stephanie Spate, Natalie Wyant, Stephen Henning, Tessa Stoltz, Haley Warren, Nick Striegel, and Jessica Schau.